Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangang namasami. Continuing with blessings. The next one is outstanding behavior. Now, prior to this, we had normative behavior, uh, not falling below decency, standards of decency, and relating to all of the members of your family. Now we're asking a little more, something that would be regarded as outstanding, that you would be regarded as a, an outstanding member of the community. So here we go into positive social action. And this means that one steps up and is observant and feels that one can assist others and lead in certain areas that are beneficial. Now, in order to do this, it means that you have to have some information and wisdom because, of course, people take it upon themselves to act, to attempt to lead people, but often they're charismatic, they're energetic, but they lead people into unskillful results because they don't personally know what is the good. So here again, we, we need to know something about the good. And uh, so this is similar to this phrase that you find in, the, in Plato and Socrates, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we also have that in, in Buddhist teachings, a vision of what is the good and what is appropriate for humans. So the outstanding behavior might be just uh, teaching others, but it should actually be also a type of skillful behavior. So you behave in a way that makes you an example for others. And there's all kinds of needs in human life. Sometimes people need economic help. Sometimes they need simply food, shelter, clothing, medicine, organizations that allow them access to improvement of the quality of their lives. And this might be the arts and various things to make them that energize humans in a positive way. So there's many ways to practice outstanding behavior, but it means stepping out sometimes out of your, the smallness of your own life. And this is actually something to look forward to. If you stay within just your little life, your little family, it can get awfully shallow, like a mud puddle. So you want to open up the mud puddle and open it into a lake. And that means larger vision of, of humanity and that you are actually related to all the beings on the planet. And the larger your vision, the larger your inner life will be. Now this needs some caution because and I regularly give talks about this, that people can often be very compassionate, but they have a kind of 
inappropriate compassion. That is, they're very resonant to other people's deprivations and needs, but they take it on as a form of suffering or grief. And one has to be very wary of that. One can't just be cold and aloof from the needs of other beings. And it's a great, greatly enjoyable actually to learn to participate in helping others in, in very sometimes very ordinary ways. But one has to be on guard against this excessive sympathetic suffering, which uh, some people call compassion. And compassion is not sympathetic suffering. It is, it is loving kindness and awareness of the suffering of others, but it is not a negative emotion. It doesn't drain you of energy. It doesn't keep you up at night. It doesn't deplete your own life experience of positive emotions. So this outstanding behavior has to be motivated in the right way. And the Buddha has a lot of information about right motivation, and we will talk about it in the future. And I have talked about it extensively in the past as well. And all of these can be referred to in other talks I've given on compassion and even social action. So it's not that we're pure contemplatives, but that action takes place. And especially in the lay life, when you're mixed into the ordinary life of the community, then quite often the positive aspects of your life will involve social community action. The next is blameless action. So this action has to be very well calculated because it's very easy to uh, do the wrong thing. And of course this happens, this can happen. Now if you go to medical school, become a doctor, first thing they'll tell you is you can't do any medicine on anybody until you finish this course. So in your first year, don't be out there helping everybody. <laughs> no matter how great the need is, if you don't really have the skills and the education, your contributions may be more harmful than good. And these days, of course, with media and so forth, uh, it's very easy to get a platform for giving advice, but some of the advice, maybe much of the advice can be very harmful. People have all kinds of takes on uh, what, what people should do with their health and how people should think about various things and lots of flaky ideas that are actually very harmful. So the Buddha is saying, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of like a, a court of law where you're actually responsible for negligence. And if you act without proper information and skills and you get negative results and you should have known better, then you are blameworthy. And so you have to be careful that your actions are blameless. So that's an area of, of discretion and you have to examine yourself and say, you know, do I really know what I'm talking about here? Is this advice that I'm given and the actions that I'm taking, are they are really well thought out? 
or are they just something that I want to get off my chest? Is it my needs that I'm serving or is it the uh, needs of others that I'm serving? Open hands to all relatives. And so this is, again, with the extended family, that it's the nature of the extended family to be responsible for each other. And there are types of cultures that degenerate and where nobody takes care of anybody else in, the, in their extended family. And it is quite appalling to see the Buddha gives some examples in certain suttas of, of the possibilities of descent of social structures into chaos and selfishness where everybody's out for themselves and it turns into violence and theft and absolutely negative, irresponsible action. Everybody seems to have turned into a sociopath and it's quite a, it's a bottoming out. And there are times and places in uh, human history where that has happened. It can happen in wars and in the aftermath of wars and in certain kind of structures where psychopathic personalities are in charge. It's possible for human nature to generate to an unthinkable level. So we have to do the opposite and it, when you are not open to helping your, your own relatives, then you will see that there is a downward spiral. So it is, uh, should be taken on not as a terrible duty, but as a, as a joyful act to be helpful to your relatives. And if you have resources, then you can also practice selfless giving. And giving is an art in itself. The Buddha talks about the skills that you can develop for that. There's all kinds of giving, sometimes very inappropriate giving, but he gives some interesting suggestions for who a skillful giver is. Now, you don't have to be a perfect giver before you start. You can start at any level and you learn. And one of the things he talks about is to give, first of all, to be joyful at the thought of giving. And then joyful while you're giving. And then joyful after you have given. And this is to be practiced because lots of people do acts of charity, but they do it for various motivations. Sometimes they're reluctant, but they think there's a pressure on them to practice some sort of charity. And they have to, they have to do it, but they, would, they begrudge it. Or they have this good idea, but in the moment when they're actually giving their possessions away, some money or something like that away, they are not very pleased by it. And then there's the after. So this is particularly where you've given something very thoughtful to a, a relative and then they, they give it away or they, they neglect it or they ruin it, they don't appreciate it. And then you think, I wish I hadn't given that away, you know. They're, you're now disappointed and, and regretful. And that is a mistake. The Buddha says, you know, you can't predict how things are going to be used. 
The real joy is yours. The real merit, the positive energy is in your giving. So feel free to give. You know, in the West, quite often people make a, a federal case out of giving. Like people, they're walking down the street and some street person, homeless person is asking for money and they, they get into a terrible bind about whether to give, you know, should I give them a dollar or not? What if they drink it? You know, what if they misuse it or they're a drug addict or something like that? And on and on and on. So one should free oneself from so much preoccupation. You don't know how that person's going to use it. They might be a drug addict. They might be an alcoholic. And it might be the last time they ever took a drink. Maybe that, that little action was enough to move them to say, you know, I got to take care of myself. Because in, in the lives of drug addicts and alcoholics and people who are dejected or socially ostracized, there, and you can see the story many, many times, there is a last drink and a last drug and a last despair. And then they change and they go in the other direction. And what that time will be, no one knows. But so it's, you know, just don't be over complex about it. It doesn't require a supercomputer to, to figure out all the secondary effects of handing over a buck or two to somebody on the street. Do it or don't do it, but don't worry about it. And if you do it, do it joyfully and never regret it. Now, of course, you can take some time to think about these acts of generosity as well. And so this is the Buddha talks about a skillful giver. They, they think they choose something which is timely. Like a winter jacket in the middle of summer is not timely. And a summer shirt in the middle of winter may not be timely. Offering somebody dinner just after they've eaten may not be timely. So there is a timeliness to this. There is an appropriate, and also appropriate gifts. You know, if you're, if you're getting something for a child, don't get something that's suitable for an adult. And if you're getting something for an adult, don't get something that's suitable for a child. <laughs> get something that's suitable for that person. And then consider their interests, their, what they need. You know, if they're a vegetarian, then don't get them a steak. You know, if they've given up drinking, don't buy them a bottle of whiskey. There's all kinds of thoughtfulness to this. Asking, what do they lack? Do they, first of all, on the nature of lack and need. So that's providing food and so forth. And then there's another level of it where it's not a matter of real lack, but it's a matter of, uh, in fact, luxury or joy. And that's fine to do that, to give ornaments and jewelry and pleasant things. That's fine as well. That's a beautiful possibility. Gifts such as that are always appropriate. One of the things the Buddha says is to, is at least it should be clean. So it can be secondhand. You can, your secondhand clothes, secondhand furniture, all kinds of secondhand stuff is fine, but at least it should be clean. <laughs> it's so, so dismissive and unthoughtful and subhuman to give something that's filthy. <laughs> Don't do it. 
a little bit about giving as well. That the Buddha talks about this karmic, uh, the results, and uh, the results of giving is that the thing that you give comes back with the attitude that you gave it with. So if you gave it with reluctance or you regretted it later, things still come back to you. The universe is a kind of magnifying glass. It amplifies generosity. So you give a, a small amount, but an enormous amount comes back to you. But it comes back with the spirit that you gave it with as well. So if you give inappropriate things, you get inappropriate things. <laughs> All kinds of stuff that you have no use for whatsoever. <laughs> if you give reluctantly, you get things back, but you can't enjoy them. There's a kind of a lack of, of, of emotional quality to the gift. So when you give, make it a, you realize whether you like it or not, uh, it is highly, there's an economy of gifts. And when you give things away, whether you like it or not, whether you think it should be this way or not, things come back. Food comes back, shelter comes back, medicine comes back, kindness comes back as well. All kinds of things come back. Whatever the nature of the gift is, whatever the nature of the thought that accompanies the gift, they return in abundance. So it's the, it's the nature of the universe. And of course, the opposite as well. If you do not practice generosity, nothing comes back. If you're stingy, then you deprive yourself of future benefit. Now, some people say, well, I don't like to give thinking of something in return. And that's fine. You don't have to think of anything in return, but it will return. <laughs> if you put your money in the bank at interest, you don't have to think or hope about the interest. The interest just accrues on the money. It just happens. And you don't have to want it to happen. It just happens. So, yes, I would say the most pure giving is without consideration of return. But it's kind of like physics. Once you understand the nature of physics, that energy is neither created nor destroyed, but only transforms, etc. You don't, you can't undo that. And, and once you understand the, the structure, the physics of generosity, it's a type of knowledge. And it's not something that you have to pretend you don't know about in order to be pure in your giving. It's very clear that Abundance comes back. And I think it's okay to celebrate that too, to give and realize, oh, yeah, but all of it comes back multiple times. And to be stingy, it all comes back as well. And who wants to be deprived? Do you really want deprivation, lack? No. And all of the gifts and uh, benefits and blessings that I've talked about are for your the increase of your happiness and the fact that you would like to increase your happiness is not a wrong motivation it's a very good motivation the buddha says that it is quite natural to humans to want to be happy and you should not ever instruct people 
that their happiness doesn't matter and that everybody else's does. No, your happiness matters. If anybody else's, uh, how he explains it is that everybody else wants to be happy. Uh, you must want to be happy as well. You want to be happy and therefore you know everybody else wants to be happy too. They're just like you. And that's, by the way, in uh, psychology, that's called theory of mind. And it's a strange thing because it's not a theory. It's that either you understand that others are like you and you, you, you can assess their motivations and how they think because you think they're like me. I know how they think. And that's that you have a theory of a mind in another person. Uh, certain people don't have a theory of mind. They don't attribute other people to have motives or a mind like them. And they're called psychopaths. <laughs> Sometimes uh, some psychologists say that children before the age of four or three also don't have a theory of mind. It's a little debatable. Some people say they do, even at 18 months. They, they see that others might be motivated like them. So the other kid likes a toy, just they like a toy and that other kid might like a toy too. But it takes, so uh, a person who's really empathic and highly developed, highly sensitive can intuit and read in very subtle ways other people because they, they really understand that if you want to see other people's minds, look at your own. And this is the nature of meditation, of course, is that spend a lot of time looking at your own mind and you'll have great understanding about other, other people's minds, how they work, motivations. So if you want to understand other people, don't, you don't have to stare at other people or question other people so much. Uh, a lot of inner work contemplation will reveal much about the nature of the human mind because it's not, it's not personal. The mind is this force of nature who knows how it is constructed or where it comes from, it just arrives and we don't make it and it's not ours, but it is visible. You look into it and you think, so this thing is not personal, it's arising in other humans as well. And in fact, in animals as well. So that's, that's how you gain compassion for animals as well. That, and that was missing from certain cultures. They do not have a theory of mind about animals or a theory of mind about other cultures. So they regard other cultures as not human or not like me, but my people are like me. So this is the, this is the nature of generosity and giving. And uh, it's important to develop this and to understand this. And it's quite a joy. It's like magic. Somebody who's good at a generosity is, is a magician. Yeah. And they delight others. To cease and abstain from evil. Well, yes. And this is, of course, the basics of this are fully described in the five precepts. Not to kill, not to steal not to commit sexual misconduct, not to lie, 
or use harsh or malicious speech and to abstain from intoxicants. And in this blessing, it's included. So it says, to cease and abstain from evil, to avoid intoxicants. So the first part is to cease and abstain from evil is the first of the five precepts, the first four of the five precepts. And I just, a little aside, now this is for people who are familiar with the Eightfold Path. The, the abstaining from intoxicants doesn't appear explicitly in the Eightfold Path, but the other four precepts do. Non-killing, non-stealing, non-sexual misconduct, and no lying appear in the, in the Eightfold Path. And in some of the suttas, it's just the first four that are listed as the moral agents. The last one, that is to avoid intoxicants, is the fifth precept. And the Buddha does talk about it explicitly, and it's explicitly in the five precepts, but not in the Eightfold Path. And the, the nature of intoxicants is that it reduces your, your capacity to make good judgments. And if you're not highly trained already, most of the first four precepts get broken uh, easily when one is not is incapacitated by alcohol or drugs. So just look at the how things are initiated in criminal activity quite often. It's preceded by intoxication. So fights break out and very inappropriate speech and violence, even killing and so forth, break out, sexual misconduct. The roots of these are very often in, preceded by intoxicants. So you can bless your life by avoiding intoxicants, learning, not, learning how to live without them. This, this can be awkward um, in, I would say, in contemporary society, but we're very familiar with it. It's, it's much more acceptable now. Lots of people are allowed to say they don't drink. Thank you very much. They're good on them. They, have, they might have had uh, difficulties with alcohol or drugs, and they have given it up, and they have to very explicitly explain to people, no, thank you, I don't drink, I don't indulge. It can be tedious because people are endlessly offering drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and uh, if they're not properly developed people, they, they want to entwine you with their vice as well. People don't like to drink alone, actually. <laughs> they look at, they're looking for somebody else to drink with or to take drugs with. So it's a, it's a pervasive problem throughout human history. You see it all throughout human history. And it's really a, a great shame that these things are there, but you can personally take on the responsibility and of course you can encourage your, your family and your friends, if they're open to it, to avoid intoxicants and to find out how to live without it. Intoxicants are particularly strongly addictive for certain types of people and others not so much. And as far as alcohol goes, some people behave very badly on, on alcohol and some people manage to 
remain in a dignified condition. But in general, it's just better to avoid it. For the monks, the rule for the monks, might, you might be interested to find out that monks, that if a monk takes even the amount of alcohol that drips off the end of a blade of grass, it's a confessional offense. There is no tolerance for alcohol at all in the Vinaya. And any drugs that are intoxicants that weaken your mindfulness, your sampajanya, your, uh, your clear comprehension and awareness are also of the same nature and it's a confessional offense not to be indulged in, in even in the slightest, even to take it below the, the level which be an intoxicant. There's various opinions about this for lay people, whether a glass of beer is allowable and doesn't break the precept or not. Uh, I don't see any indication that the Buddha talked about it as okay to have a glass now and then. He never said that. Some people say, well, he never said not to, but it's very clear that he did say to avoid intoxicants. And what they bring up is that that which uh, weakens your judgment. So some people say, well, I had, you know, half a glass of beer is not, doesn't weaken my judgment. But anyway, you're going to have to make that decision yourself. And ultimately, don't, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. To be diligent in virtuous practices. So this is the positive side of this. So we've got the negative side, to cease and abstain from evil, to avoid intoxicants. So that's the five precepts. And then to be diligent in virtuous practices. So virtuous practices are the practice of clarity, of generosity, kindness, and clarity. The unwholesome ones are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. So the precepts are violated because of the motive of greed, hatred, and delusion. They're not, they're not uh, violated by accident. There's always got to be intention behind them. And the virtuous practices are always motivated by the opposite. They're motivated by generosity, kindness, and clarity. And so there's so many possible, skillful, delightful actions that you can undertake. And they can be of thought, of speech, and action. So virtuous actions uh, are, of course, we went through all kinds of practices of generosity. But you can also share, of course, your, uh, your education. So you can educate others, teach them the basic skills. And, you know, this is, we, we covered it earlier in the blessings, is to learn these handicraft and skills and education, etc. And then one of the virtuous practices is to give education. So people who teach the others how to gain, gain a livelihood, to give training, livelihood, but also the other delightful arts and crafts. There's all kinds of arts and crafts in life that give delight. And if you have skill in this, you can share that, and that's a virtuous action, a virtuous practice. There's, the Buddha talks about people who, who do have skills but do not share, and there are people who 
um, take care of others but don't take care of themselves. And there's a person who takes care of both themselves and others. And at the top of this list is a person who takes care of themselves and also others, teaches others and has learned themselves before taking care of others. This is uh, something that's confusing in this, this cultures and there's certain kind of leftover, I think badly taught Christian ideas of putting your own well-being aside and helping others first and not considering yourself. But the Buddha is saying, there's a list of four kinds of people. There is the person who neither helps themselves nor anybody else. That's the bottom of the list. The next one is one who helps others but not themselves. That's the third one down. The next one up, the second one up is one who helps oneself but not others. So look at that. The one who helps oneself but not others is, is second. The one who helps others but not oneself is third. The one who, who neither helps oneself nor others is fourth. What's the top? One who helps one's, both oneself and others. So one who educates oneself, one trains oneself, one inquires deeply, who practices wise reflection and attention and investigation of both the, the worldly arts and crafts and also the, the Dhamma. And then when you can, and when you have something to share, then you share it with others. And you do not neglect your own well-being. In the sharing with others, you don't neglect your own well-being. And so this is implied in this uh, development of virtuous practice, the giving up of negative things and the practicing of the positive things. This is again, you see the, this is uh, a, a nice little duality that the Buddha uses again and again. He divides things up into two. And he's one of his stories from his time before he was enlightened, when he was a enlightenment seeker, a bodhisattva, he, he thought to himself, well, I'm going to divide up my thoughts into two piles. Those which I regret later, that, that do me no good, that don't vitalize me now, that don't feel good now and don't feel good later. And then the pile that, where I have no regrets about. They're, they're positive now and positive later. I'm going to divide my thoughts up into the, these two piles. And then I'm going to make a determination. I am not going to ex take up any of those thoughts that I put into the, 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 the bad pile. And I'm only going to think those thoughts that I realize uplift me now and I'll also in retrospect I, I look back on as, as being positive. So you see this, this is just a technique he, he, for sorting out the complexity of the world. This is like, you've got to start somewhere. It's a, the world and the experience of life is a massive chaotic experience. It's, it's full of clouds, mist. So you've got to start somewhere. So he starts with, oh, let's make it into two. He starts with twos. So then he, he goes, and if, if it works, he'll, he'll go to threes or fours. So you, you'll get the four noble truths, etc. And if he needs more compartments and categorizations, he does that. But quite often you'll see this. And this, 
This, to cease and abstain from evil, to avoid intoxicants, to be diligent in virtuous practices, basically is exactly that duality. And it's what you find in the under right effort. You'll see the negative stuff, that which is to be avoided, and an effort made to avoid, and the positive stuff, the effort is made to cultivate and develop. And then they're divided into two parts. The negative stuff, prevention and removal. And then the positive things, again, divided into two, developed if not there, and sustained if there, sustained and deepened if there. So he's very logical in his process, very elegant in his teaching. That's, he's a good teacher. So he breaks it down into workable parts and allows clarity. And so in these blessings, again, he's very lucid in these. To be reverent and humble. Now this is, these are attitudes. Uh, and if you're arrogant and disrespectful, uh, you're headed for trouble. <laughs> you, people will, people who are wise and knowledgeable don't want anything to do with you. They don't need a disrespectful, arrogant person. Nobody needs you. But if you're, if you're respectful and admiring of somebody who has skills and you're humble enough to ask for instruction, then that's the right approach to this. Now, this is happening to some degree in, in, in education in, uh, our society, in the Western society in particular, that students often just go, they're forced to go to school. And uh, they may have a very bad attitude to this. They don't appreciate, tall, appreciate at all that they're being, uh, that the construction of the educational system and even libraries and so forth is a, an act of profound generosity by a previous generation that are full of light and who understand that a, a human that doesn't know anything is a, is a, Terrible waste. <laughs> Animals have instincts. They can, they just instinctively know. Humans don't. And without training and education, they don't know anything. They're useless. So humans knowing that and taking time and energy, they construct educational structures and systems. And I think when this first arose, people were profoundly grateful for the opportunity because they didn't necessarily deserve it. Why do you deserve to go to grade one? You know, what have you done? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but it's an unfortunate attitude. And uh, yeah, if you're not interested and so forth, fine, you'll end up ignorant. That's all. And uh, there's nobody has to fix that. You're not entitled, really, and if you don't make effort and pay attention, you'll get the results. So the Buddha is, uh, you know, there's a lot of humility in, in approaching the Sangha and asking for ordination and training. You have to be very diligent in this, and uh, anybody who's teaching Dhamma and so forth is not interested in the slightest. And if you're not, they don't need you, but you need them. 
And this is, a, this is something I learned from a monk, a Tibetan monk actually, 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. I was in uh, university and uh, there was a Tibetan monk living in Toronto and, and strangely enough, his disciples were mostly young Western guys in university in their 20s that showed up there. And, uh, you know, we're full of education and opinions and arrogance and all this kind of stuff. And basically, you know, the moment you walked in the door, the first lesson was this. You need me. I don't need you. You know, we're not pay, you're not paying me at all. I'm willing to give this, but I don't need you. You really need me. Uh, you need the teacher. The teacher doesn't need you. This is good to hear for a Western guy. <laughs> Good to hear. Sometimes teachers from the West go to uh, Asia uh, to teach English as a second language and so forth. And quite often they're quite astonished by the, the uh, goodwill and respect that they get from the students. You know, they, in the morning they come into the class and this, the class, all, these kids all stand up and, and say, good morning, and then they bring them gifts and everything. And, show appreciation because, da, <laughs> the teacher is giving you the, the great gift and you appreciate it. What is going on when you don't understand that? Uh, so we have covered some more blessings and we have another blessing talk to go and we'll see how far we get. I will leave it for today.